Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The Johnson government completed a reset of Downing Street this week, but the sacking of Met Police Chief Cresta Dick through the investigation into Partygate into chaos. Following contact with the Mayor of London today, it is quite clear that the Mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service for me to continue as Commissioner. He has left me no choice but to step aside. I say this with deep sadness and regret. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining the abrupt departure of Met Police Commissioner Cresta Dick, who you heard at the top of the programme, and how it plays into Boris Johnson's hopes of resetting his government. We'll be looking at the mini-cabinet reshuffle, the new number 10 team, and whether the police investigation risks destabilising all that. Political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss. And later, we'll be looking at the government's signal to end all COVID restrictions for England by the end of February and ask, is it too hasty or a welcome term to normality? Is the decision driven by science or by politics? Health editor Sarah Neville and political correspondent Jasmine kamen Seleshi will explore. Thank you all very much for joining. So, after a dramatic fortnight, the Prime Minister finished that reset of his government. A new team has been installed in Downing Street, a minor cabinet reshuffle has taken place, and Boris Johnson has pledged, once again, to listen more to MPs and have better links between the Parliamentary Party and Number 10. But hanging over all this remains the Met Police's investigation into the Partygate scandal. Twelve parties are being investigated for potentially breaking COVID rules. That was thrown into doubt with the abrupt resignation of the Met Commissioner, Cresta Dick, on Thursday evening. Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, said that he had all but sacked her after being unimpressed by her pledges to reform the force. I made clear to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner the scale of the change I believe is urgently required to rebuild the trust and confidence of Londoners in the Met and to root out the racism sexism, homophobia, bullying, discrimination and misogyny that still exists. I am not satisfied with the Commissioner's response. On being informed of this, Dame Cressida Dick has offered her resignation, which I have accepted. Well, Robert Shamesley, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with that departure there, that if you look at that litany of things the Mayor of London was unhappy about, it's almost amazing she's lasted this period of time. Do you think it was the right decision for her to quit, or I should say be sacked? I think it's an extraordinary event, and the chronology of this is still little bits that we don't know. But I think the, the first thing you have to say is it's only two or three months since both Sadiq Khan and Priti Patel reappointed her for two years. And you have to say what's happened in the last two or three months that Sadiq Khan wasn't really aware of 
when he chose to reappoint her, it's a fact that one of the arguments that both sides used, and they only reappointed her for two years, was that they didn't have another clear candidate to replace her, which is probably something we'll come to and discuss. I think in the end that she probably did have to go. And I think for a start, when, once you lose the confidence of the elected mayor, someone who has in general been supportive of you, that's very tricky to stay on. There had been a run of, of scandals one after another, often small scale in themselves, behaviour specific officers, mistreatment of people they'd arrested, shocking thing uh, last week, the exchange of a really terrible misogynistic messages from a unit in Charing Cross, a historic thing where the details had just come out, the policing of the Sarah Everard protest, the fact that Sarah Everard was murdered by a police officer, the response to women about how they might feel safe when approached by police officers. There's just been a long run of this, and it goes a long, long way back with Cresta Dick, there was a report last year into the um, police investigation of a private investigator, Daniel Morgan. This is a very, very historic crime. And that report talked about institutional corruption within the Met. And by that, they, they meant that they covered up. And I think the point is, there is a culture all the way through the Met that has been alarming people of problems and problems which the people at the top are failing to sort out. And you can say one or two incidences, that's rotten apples, but it keeps happening. And there does seem to be a sense, as the report said, that they don't really believe in sunlight and transparency is the best way to tackle culture, which means that culture won't be tackled. So in the end, I suspect there was no choice but for Cressida Dick to go. Well, George Parker, I think one of the reasons that I think she had to go was her slightly tone-deaf public attitude to certain things. She gave an interview on Thursday morning where she said, there is absolutely no way I'm going. I'm overseeing this transformation in culture, and that's what I want to see through. And about seven hours later, she was out of her job, and it looked as if she was almost calling Sadiq Khan's bluff there by saying, look, you've said you want me to sort out this mess. I'm going to do it, and if you're not happy, then I'm going to go. And obviously, he lost faith in her too, but we also know that the Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, has not been entirely happy with Cresta Dick either. But of course, this is all quite the, the challenge for whoever's going to replace her. You're right, in that interview on BBC Radio London, it wasn't so much that she didn't seem to have a plan to tackle the problems that Robert's just very eloquently described, but she didn't even seem to be acknowledging the problems themselves, or at least the seriousness of them. And I think that was probably the final straw as far as Sadiq Khan was concerned. Obviously, the way the whole thing's been handled has been appalling, really. Um, the fact that Sadiq Khan was not in contact with Priti Patel about this, she was blindsided, and she's Home Secretary, after all, Chris Dick is the Chief Police Officer of the whole UK, not just for London. And I suppose the other thing we've got to factor into this is the way that the Metropolitan Police handled the whole Partygate affair. The fact that they were extremely slow to get involved, first of all saying they wouldn't investigate historical allegations, then they said there wasn't enough evidence, and then eventually they decided they were going to investigate it just at the very moment that Sue Gray, the senior civil servant, was about to produce her report, which obviously laid met open to allegations they were involved in some kind of establishment stitch-up. So I think if you put all those things together, I think I agree with Robert. Inevitably, in the end, she had to go. And personally, I think she shouldn't have been appointed to the job in the first place, considering her role as the lead officer in the, the episode that led to the shooting of Jean-Charles Menez all those years ago. So I personally think it was the right decision. And Robert, there is this question about what comes next. So there is, first of all, how they're going to find someone, because obviously the Met is handling one of the most politically sensitive investigations in its history, which we're about to come on to. But obviously the force itself does need radical reform. And I think there is an argument that actually this is time to look at the structure of the Met and having a police force for London that also does national counterterrorism. There's also effectively a federal national police force. It's just too big. And in fact, this moment should be used to re-examine it and maybe break it up in some respects. 
if we park the Partygate inquiry for a moment, which ought not to be a terribly complex matter, though politically sensitive, obviously, I've long been of the view that the Met should be broken up. We have a national crime agency which covers a lot of issues, organised crime, economic crime and so on. It seems apparent, particularly if Priti Patel and Sadiq Khan are saying they couldn't find a replacement when they reappointed Cresta Dick, that what they're saying is the job is too big and the structure is, is wrong. You have these huge national responsibilities, counterterrorism, policing of airports, all kinds of diplomatic and personal protection, protection of the Palace of Westminster and so on. These come under the Met. At the same time as you have the standard policing of London. And it seems obvious that one way to deal with this would be to take those national responsibilities, hand them to the National Crime Agency, put somebody in charge. Of, you know, you've got a former chief constable of Surrey, who's currently the director general of that. But, you know, if you want to bulk that up, that's fine. And then you have a traditional police chief constable to oversee the policing of London as the rest of the country is policed. The problem is the way that she has gone now, they're probably going to have to rush to find a replacement rather than make a structural change immediately. But it is the logical way to go, I think. The Met is one of the biggest police forces in the world. And if you're struggling to find someone who can run it, one of the questions you should ask is, do we have the right structure? I mean, as far as Partygate goes, it's a big political hot potato because Priti Patel's got to appoint a successor to her just at the point when they're handling a politically sensitive inquiry, which has the potential to bring down the prime minister. So that's a nightmare situation. Now, George, let's move on to where things are for the government. So we recorded this last week when Munira Mirza had quit as Boris Johnson's head of policy. And we've seen that clear out as expected at the top of number 10. And we've got a new team in. So the two most notable appointments are actually MPs, which are Steve Barclay, who is the cabinet office minister and the chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, who's now come in as number 10 chief of staff, and Andrew Griffith, who's gone in as head of policy. And there's a third appointment as well, who's someone from Boris Johnson's past. Guto Harry, he's gone in his comms chief, and this is what he had to say on his first day in the job. Good morning. Well, you looking forward to taking on the job? I am. I am. You've been told. What's the first thing you're going to do today? Uh, give healthy snacks and little water to the staff. Well, George, that initial introduction to Downing Street for Guto Harry did not quite go as well as he later gave an interview to a Welsh language and website where he said that he'd gone into the Prime Minister's office on his first day to salute him. And Boris Johnson had made a joke about him taking the near reference to something he did on GB News. And then the pair of them ended up singing a bit of Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, which seems to sort of suggest the general mood after this reset. Robert and I um, all remember Guto Harry as a political correspondent for the BBC many years ago, and he's a Evervescent, bubbly character, always very chirpy. And that was very much in character, that joke about handing out soft mineral water and healthy snacks and all that. But it didn't go down well with many Tory MPs who think the situation in Downing Street is actually quite serious. And the last thing they really wanted on the day that Guthrie Harry started the job was for him to be doing a sort of karaoke duet with the Prime Minister of Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive and then briefing the media that that's what they'd done. I think they thought that was very regressible. And I'm told that Boris Johnson gave him a bit of a telling off the next day. But that's the nature of Guthrie Harry. I think the good thing about him from Boris Johnson's point of view is he's someone who will speak truth to Boris Johnson and tell him when he's doing stupid stuff. In a way, I think some of the other people who've been around Boris Johnson in the last a few months haven't been prepared to do. But overall, you know, the shake-up inside number 10 has been billed as the return of the grown-ups. I always think that's a sort of a slightly weird thing. You think that being grown-up would be one of the pre-qualifications for working in Downing Street. But certainly they're more serious people generally, particularly Steve Barclay coming in as the chief of staff, someone who was already in the cabinet. Andrew Griffith is the head of policy, slightly more controversial choice. 
uh, particularly among Red Wall MPs, given the fact that he's got a banking background, a former executive of Sky, and represents a very prosperous seat in Sussex. But overall, probably an upgrade in what was there before. Robert, as well as Guto Howie, we've also said got Steve Barkin and Andrew Griffith, and they're both Conservative MPs. And this seems to be quite a new innovation of bringing MPs into the heart of government, particularly Steve Barclay's role as number 10 Chief of Staff. And there's obviously practical questions about how this can work, because we know Dan Rosenfeld, who left as Chief of Staff last week, he was working 12, 14-hour days. How can that work with Steve Barclay while being an MP and also a government minister? And in the case of Andrew Griffith, who's taking over as head of the policy unit. You've had an MP doing that job before. But again, this all just seems to be a way of Johnson trying to stop those letters of no confidence by bringing MPs into the heart of his government. Well, I think there are two parts to that question, Seb. The first part, which you touched on at the very end there, the question is that actually a big chunk of this reshuffle is about appealing to a constituency of 360-odd people. These are the, the Tory MPs who decide his fate, and the first thing is to shore them up. And so along with these appointments came the messages, I thought somewhat obvious, but apparently delighting backbenchers. Like, you know, we're going to have MPs playing a much more important role in forming policy and making decisions. We're going to have backbench committees looking at policy. And this was absolutely what they've been wanting to hear. And of course, completely contrary to the attitude towards MPs way back when Dominic Cummings was in charge and treated them with absolute contempt. So there's a bit of this which is just cheering up MPs. I mean, the chief of staff role is a curious one because it hasn't always been a chief of staff at Downing Street. And it's going to be interesting to see whether he's really a chief of staff running the individual people and overseeing the diary or whether it's a more strategic role. You still have the traditional people doing those jobs. The other point you have to look at is the people who are get, who are working below the waterline, all the campaign type people, those dotted around Linton Crosby, be it David Canzini, Mark Fulbrook, people like that, whose names are not widely known, but who are the sort of strategists who run campaigns and try to put him back on a, a more professional footing, a more serious and, and focused footing. The policy unit, well, a lot that much policy was not coming out of the policy unit towards the end, partly because Dan Rosenfeld had worked so hard to marginalise and push Munira Mirza aside. So what you can see across all of this is an attempt to get a grip of the things that will determine Boris Johnson's fate within the parliamentary party and within the Conservative Party. What we don't know is how this will affect and how this will make the government function better overall and do better for the country. Well, linked to that, George, was a mini cabinet reshuffle that also took place this week. And again, this has been widely anticipated with Mark Spence moving on as chief whip after he'd essentially lost the confidence of the prime minister and the parliamentary party. And he was replaced by Chris Heaton-Harris, who is a longtime supporter of Boris Johnson, actually very well liked across the parliamentary party. Mr. Rees-Mogg has moved on to Brexit Opportunities Minister, an opposition you've been having much mirth and enjoyment with. It is kind of quite small and targeted. And as often happens with reshuffles, Downing Street have said, well, this is just sort of to fix a temporary problem. We're going to have a much bigger reshuffle in the summer and probably the last one before a general election. Yes, I mean, the old cliche about the Titanic and tech chairs was being wheeled out by quite a few uh, Tory MPs this week um, in relation to this mini reshuffle. And it's a symptom of the Prime Minister's political weakness at the moment that people like the Chief Whip and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who have been at the heart of some of the government's most recent problems, particularly over sleaze, were moved into different jobs, but basically sideways. It'd be interesting to see how Jacob Rees-Mogg gets on with the Brexit Opportunities Brief. He, he wrote a, an article in the summer this week asking people to come up with ideas for regulations the government might scrap. This is uh, nearly six years after Brexit took effect. You think they might, might have come up with something themselves by now. But yes, I mean, 
it, you know, it's, it's basically sort of changing some of the more problematic people in the government, some of the people that Tory MPs were demanding should be moved. It has to be borne in mind that Boris Johnson did do quite a big reshuffle only a few months ago, back in September. But it is right that we're now getting into the point where both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer want to get their top teams in place, ready for the run into the election. Speaking to Keir Starmer, he'll tell you that the team he's got now is the team he wants to fight the election, which he thinks could take place in 2023, although I think um, we're probably a little bit sceptical about that. And the same with Boris Johnson, you know, uh, having a reshuffle in the summer would make sense because it would put them onto a sort of election footing should the Prime Minister decide to go early next year. The other point about making a warning to your MPs that there could be another reshuffle later in the year or very early next year is that it boosts loyalty. It keeps people on the straight and narrow because they might think that they're going to get preferred or that they could be sacked if they're not. And one of the striking factors, and I think one of the weaknesses of Boris Johnson's cabinet at the moment, is that it is overly determined by people who are loyal, often occasionally cringingly loyal to him, rather than necessarily the best people to do the jobs. And of course, finally, this general row about Boris Johnson's conduct and whether he's been entirely forthcoming about the party gate saga continued with an intervention from Sir John Mage, the former Conservative Prime Minister. And he came up this weekend, essentially said the PM broke the rules. At number 10, the Prime Minister and officials broke lockdown laws. Brazen excuses were dreamed up. Day after day, the public was asked to believe the unbelievable. Ministers were sent out to defend the indefensible, making themselves look gullible or foolish as they did so. Well, George, given that intervention and some of the other strong criticisms from Sir John there, where do you think the mood is about Boris Johnson's position? Because we reported this week that the letters of no confidence are thought to be about 45, which has been gradually rising upwards over the past couple of weeks, but still off that crucial 54 required to have a confidence vote. And it's been something of a debate among MPs this week if Boris Johnson is given a fixed penalty notice or potentially more than one fixed penalty notice for breaking COVID laws, will he go? And I think the sense from his team I've picked up is that he will not quit, but they are ready for him to face a no-confidence vote. Yes, I think that headline in the Sunday Times last week was pretty appropriate, that you'll need a tank division to drag Boris Johnson out of uh, out of number 10. I don't think he'll resign if he gets handed a fixed penalty notice. I can always hear him talking about the comparisons with parking tickets or speeding fines and, and carrying on. But there's no doubt that in many Tory MPs' minds, the conclusion of the police investigation is the next sort of rendezvous with destiny that the Prime Minister faces. You know, if he gets one penalty notice, then that's obviously pretty bad. And as you say, Seb, that could lead to a number of new letters going in, triggering the vote of no confidence. But what happens if he gets more than one? What happens if he gets two, three or four fixed penalty notices? We think that he attended at least six of the parties that the police are investigating. Then what? Then the fines are much bigger. It shows multiple breaches. It shows a pattern of behaviour at that point, I think it's pretty likely that a whole load more Tory MPs will put letters in. So it's a very dangerous moment for the Prime Minister, of course, followed very quickly after that by the publication that the Prime Minister's promised of the full Sue Gray report. And even if he gets through that, and uh, I think a vote of confidence at that point would, would be quite likely if he is fined by the police, he's still got a cost of living crisis to get through. And then, of course, the May the 5th local election. So it's a very difficult three months ahead for him. And finally, just briefly, Robert, it is extraordinary, though, because normally 
if a prime minister received a fine which would confirm that he had broken the law and the Met were convinced he had broken the law, that Conservatives, the party of law and order, would still keep him in place. And that parking fine analogy that George used has been some Tory MPs we're using it this week. But it doesn't quite stack up to me because it's not just leaving your car on the side of a pavement. It's as if you ban the whole country from leaving their cars on the side of pavements and then going and doing it yourself. Yeah, exactly right. And I, and I think morally the case against him at that point would be overwhelming. The question is whether MPs are prepared to act. Essentially, the, the party is now broken into its positions. You've got maybe it's up to around 40 people who've already decided he's got to go. You've got however many it is that have decided he absolutely should stay. And you've got a bunch in the middle who are just looking at events. And I think some of them are waiting for some sort of permission to turn against him. And the point about a fine or criminal act sanction from the Met Police is that gives them a permission to act. Equally, a very bad set of local elections gives them that sense of permission to turn against him. So, I mean, although I completely agree that you're going to need a crowbar to prize him out of number 10, I think if he is fined, he will face a, a leadership challenge. And how that plays out will partly be about what the opinion polls are telling Tory MPs about his chances of recovering when it happens. George and Robert, thank you very much. COVID was back in the news this week. Boris Johnson told MPs on Wednesday, handily at the very moment a new photo of a number 10 party emerged that all remaining COVID rules could be scrapped a month earlier by the end of February. That's in England. It is my intention to return on the first day after the half-term recess to present our strategy for living with COVID. Provided the current encouraging trends in the data continue, It is my expectation that we will be able to end the last domestic restrictions, including the legal requirement to self-isolate if you test positive, a full month early, Mr Speaker. But some scientists have questioned whether this was a bit too hasty and whether it was being driven by politics, not science. Peter Openshaw of Imperial College London and one of the government's scientific advisers cautioned against the move. This is going to add to the risk. I think there's no question that um, that the sooner we open up, the sooner we are going to see uh, more cases. And and that what we really want to do is to keep the case numbers down and reduce the risk of people who haven't been vaccinated or who can't respond to vaccines. Well, Sarah Neville, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you back. What did you make of this announcement by the Prime Minister? Because we know that the Coronavirus Act, which was brought in in March 2020, that gave the government those sweeping powers for lockdowns and various other measures, that was set to automatically expire. What the Prime Minister seemed to suggest is that things are going so well, we can bring that act out of law at the end of February and essentially go back to life as normal. Is this something that's been expected? No, and I think the sort of manner of the announcement is what rather alarmed some people in the health and science community. The fact that there wasn't any pitch rolling, as we say in Westminster jargon, that this wasn't announced at a press conference where Boris Johnson was flanked by his scientific and health advisors, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty. There's been a, a silence from Messrs Valance and Whitty that may or may not mean anything, but I think this was an announcement made in a way differently to others that we've heard, other similarly crucial moments in the lifting of restrictions that have typically been made in a much more formal way and very obviously with the endorsement of the scientific and and health advisors to the government. 
Now, Jasmine Cameron Schleschi, it's great to have you back as always. Whenever Boris Johnson has made these announcements, there is always that question mark of how much this is about science and how much is it about politics. And you've done an awful lot of speaking to Tory MPs this week. What's your sense of the mood there? Are they eager for this or is this just something they're going to generally welcome or some even sceptical? So lots of people in the Conservative Party had been feeling deeply uncomfortable with the imposition of restrictions, especially once the vaccination rollout was in full swing. Many of the MPs I spoke to really felt as though restrictions weren't really proportionate or necessary at this stage. And we saw that last December where nearly 100 Conservative MPs voted against some of the Plan B measures, including the proposals for vaccine passports. So now I think it's important to see this within the context of wider political challenges for Johnson. There's growing unease on the backbenches about his handling of Partygate. There are questions as to whether he lied to the House, as to whether he broke the laws. And so I do think Johnson in recent months has really lost his political capital. He doesn't have a large base of support to be put pushing through on popular coronavirus policies anymore. He's been having these one-to-one meetings and group sessions with Conservative MPs, trying to address their concerns over policy areas, whether that's COVID or levelling up or net zero. So within this context, it's sort of inevitable that the coronavirus rules would be an easy target for a PM who's hoping to win back the support of the party. And I think he's largely lucky in that the overall mood of the public is one of weariness when it comes to COVID restrictions. No one's looking to have further measures placed on them. People sort of want to get out of the stage. And so I think it's been largely welcomed by MPs. I think there'll be sort of an understanding from the public. But naturally, there is that scepticism from the scientists. And I think Sarah raised a really good point of the fact that the timing and the way the message was framed in the House of Commons, as opposed to a press conference, really made it feel like a political statement. We didn't have a scientific figure there sort of giving a sense of context behind the decision, giving us a bit of detail as to what the current situation is like with hospitalizations and infections. It really felt as though we moved past this notion of following the science. And actually, living with COVID seems to be balancing what's politically possible with what the government can scientifically get away with, basically. Now, Sarah, what is the general COVID situation at the moment across the UK? Because obviously those Plan B measures ceased at the end of January and Wales this week and also Scotland have followed by relaxing those measures they brought in just after Christmas. And it feels like the Omicron wave has passed, but we still got quite a high level of infections every day. And everyone loves to use this phase that we're moving from the pandemic stage to the endemic phase. What does that exactly mean? And this term that the Prime Minister used, living with COVID, what does that mean? We do have an extraordinarily high level of infections historically, if you look through the the whole course of the pandemic. However, that said, they are very much going in the right direction. When you look at that coronavirus dashboard, as I'm sure many of us do every single day, four o'clock, we turn to that dashboard and you can see now that everything is green, everything is going down, cases, hospitalizations, deaths. But this, you know, the the announcement this week or the prospect being raised that self-isolation requirements will now be lifted. I mean, that does point to a very different phase, a phase in which behavioural changes and modifications will be very much left up to the individual. We have seen a lot of that over Christmas and in the earlier part of this year, where Boris Johnson, almost certainly substantially for political reasons, decided not to reimpose tough restrictions. But nevertheless, 
case levels, hospitalisation levels, deaths didn't reach anything like the levels that some of the scientists had feared. And that was because we all voluntarily limited what we did. And I think there's still a lot of that going on. I, When I use public transport, there's still quite a, a high level of mask wearing, though that has ceased to be mandatory. So I think what we're seeing is a world in which your chances of contracting Omicron remain high, but controlling that, limiting that possibility will be very much left up to the individual where we choose to go, the situations in which we choose to mask. And that's the choice that the government is now putting into our hands after almost two years of an extraordinarily high level of government-led controls. And it is an interesting question, Jason, because the COVID research group, or COVID recovery group, I should say, which are the lockdown sceptic Tory MPs, they've become some of the biggest agitators against Boris Johnson's leadership, the likes of Steve Baker and Mark Harper, who have always been against draconian COVID restrictions and have always questioned the science and logic behind lockdown. And of course, they love to point at some of the models that SAGE, the government's advisory body, did about the Omicron wave, which were out by several factors, if I recall, in terms of looking at, you know, how this wave was going to impact the country. So they feel vindicated in a way. But of course, there could be more COVID variants. The situation could get worse again. And the government might end in a situation where it has to bring back restrictions, but doesn't have powers under the coronavirus act. There's obviously other public health legislation they can use. But you can see how this will shore up his position within the party, but it could leave him exposed on the health fronts. And I can imagine that when this plan for living with COVID comes out about the 21st of February, we're expecting it, that's the argument Labour's going to make. Yes, I think you're right in flagging that it is a, a short-term solution. And I do think, yes, while members of the COVID recovery group probably do feel quite vindicated, they've been arguing for a long time that actually this should be left to sort of individual choice. The government should present clear information and allow people to to make the safest decisions for them. But I do think the group are going to be focusing quite heavily on the use of data that justified previous lockdowns, the use of modelling, as you referenced. And I think they'll be sort of challenging the government when it comes to future variants or potentially future restrictions as to you know what tools we should be using, what voices we should be having at the table when these decisions are made. And I think this whole notion of living with COVID, it's been banded around for months now. And I think it's good to sort of see the government hopefully putting a bit of flesh on these plans. But one concern I do have is sort of what happens to a lot of the infrastructure that's been set up to help us monitor the virus. So there were some reports suggesting that the weekly COVID infection survey, which is run by the ONS, will potentially be scaled back. Now that crucially measures both infection rates and antibodies in household. I think the FT did it, we did a story a couple of months ago looking at the fact that the Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Centre could potentially be sold off. My concern is that we look at the infrastructure that's been put in place to monitor the virus, make sure we're still investing in that and making sure that if there is another variant, if there is another outbreak, we haven't completely lost all of those tools that helped us to handle the virus. Because Sarah, we have to put this in the context of the general pressures on the NHS as well. And there was a story in The Spectator that said that that had some figures that showed that waiting lists are going to be as high as 9 million up until March 2024, which is just about the time Boris Johnson's going to be thinking about calling a general election. Obviously, we've got that NI tax rise coming in April that's meant to put extra cash towards the NHS. But if we're going to have these sustained high 
high levels of COVID infections on top of the backlogs. That's a very difficult place for the health service to be. How do you feel as if there's a good plan in place to cope with this, never mind the funding question? Yes, I think the IFS has said they think waiting lists will peak between 8 and 11 million. And we got a plan this week, which was a very long-awaited plan, originally due early December, interrupted by Omicron, and then, as we reported earlier in the week, delayed because Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, wasn't happy with the strength of the targets that the NHS was committing to in terms of bringing down waiting times. Nevertheless, that plan was published. And I think the feeling in the health service is that the targets that they have committed to are immensely stretching, but are achievable, or at least potentially achievable. But the one sort of really big lacuna in this waiting list plan, which had quite a lot of interesting ideas for limiting and reducing demand, but it had very little to say about the workforce. And I think that is becoming the issue that overrides absolutely everything in the NHS these days, that there's no plan for the workforce. We haven't actually had a properly worked out plan for the NHS's staffing needs since 2003, believe it or not, actually uh, back in the, the Blair era. And the government still hasn't announced the allocation that it's going to make for education and training, which we'd originally expected on budget day right back in November. So that's the issue, which I think will be the single biggest obstacle to clearing these waiting lists. And as you say, Seb, this is a desperately important sort of political imperative to be seen to be clearing those lists as we come up to a likely 2024 general election, where even by the government's own estimates, waiting lists will still be rising, at least at the start of that likely election year, 2024. And then just finally, briefly, Jasmine, there is obviously pressure on Boris Johnson to not go ahead with that NI tax rise, given the cost of living crisis, energy prices. And the sense that I get is that that would short the Prime Minister's position considerably if he did that, except with the Treasury who are saying, look, this money does need to be spent. We can't fund it out of borrowing. And it feels as if the government is still going to go ahead with this. But of course, I think if there was a leadership contest in the coming weeks and months, I could imagine Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss coming out quite quickly to say, oh no, we're not going to go ahead with that tax rise. And if that happened, that would throw all those issues that the service has talked about into even more doubt. Yeah, I think it's fair to say at the moment that both Johnson and Rishi Sunak have sort of tried to strongly come out and argue in favour of the tax rises and sort of present their justifications to both the public and the MPs. Obviously, solving social care was one of the manifesto pledges. It's been a key priority for the government. But you're right in that a lot of Conservative MPs are really unhappy with tax rises. They think it's unconservative. And the idea that we could potentially still be grappling with high waiting lists come election is a really difficult pill for a lot of people to swallow. And I do think if the situation politically becomes a little bit more unstable, if Johnson's really feeling like he could be facing leadership challenge, this policy could be one of the first ones to go. And I think just touching on what Sarah mentioned about the workforce, I think that's a really good point in that that's part of the reason why the mandatory jab policy for the NHS was also scrapped. Sajid Javid said in the House of Commons that once they took into account 
the impact that it could potentially have on the workforce, it was no longer a viable policy. And I think that is the big elephant in the room when it comes to the NHS, that actually you need more doctors, you need more nurses to grapple with the huge health issues that the country's facing. Well, Sarah and Jasmine, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then you could subscribe and then you'll receive episodes when they're released every Saturday morning. You can find us through all the usual channels you receive your podcasts. We also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. And the sound engineers were Breen Turner and Jan Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.